There's never justification for terrorist attacks. And my administration's support for Israel's security is rock solid and unwavering. A surprise attack from Hamas, a swift response from Israel, hundreds dead, thousands injured, and escalation threatened. For Saturday, October 7th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. We'll also head to Louisiana for an investigation into who gets and who doesn't get the jobs in pollution-causing industries. And a look at the growing trend of tearing up traditional grass lawns and why so many people are hesitant to join it. There's this image that none of us question, this perfect manicured facade. If the outside of your home looks good, your family looks good. And soccer says goodbye to the legendary Megan Rapino. She's had such a successful career because she hasn't ever not been trying to be herself. All that and more after these news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. In Israel... Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says his country is at war after Hamas launched a coordinated attack across Israel and the Israeli military responded with airstrikes in Gaza. But he told his country the war will take time. And in a late-night address, Netanyahu warned people living in Gaza to leave places Hamas could be hiding now, vowing that Israel will reach into every place to find the militants. The death toll on both sides is rising. Israeli officials say at least 200 people are dead, more than 1,000 wounded. Health officials in Gaza say more than 230 Palestinians are dead, more than 2,000 injured. A military spokesman says Hamas also took Israeli hostages. Meanwhile, in brief remarks from the White House this afternoon, President Biden condemned the attacks and reiterated that the United States stands with Israel. NPR's Asma Khalid has more. The president described the violence as heartbreaking and said he'll make sure Israel has what it needs to protect itself. Israel has the right to defend itself and its people, full stop. There's never justification for terrorist attacks. And my administration's support for Israel's security is rock solid and unwavering. Biden also warned groups hostile to Israel not to exploit the situation and take advantage of this moment. He said he's also directed his team to remain in constant contact with leaders throughout the region, and he's personally going to remain in close touch with Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Asma Khalid, NPR News. A strong earthquake has shaken parts of western Afghanistan, killing scores of people and devastating swaths of territory. That death toll is likely to significantly rise, as NPR's Dia Hadid reports from Mumbai. Images shared by Afghan journalists showed at least one village reduced to rubble after a series of quakes flattened stone and mud brick homes in the country's west. Other images showed the dead strewn about, covered out of respect with blankets. They included children. Afghanistan's Taliban government ferried away some of the wounded by helicopter. The U.S. Geological Survey reported that a pair of earthquakes had a magnitude of 6.3 and they were followed by aftershocks. Just over a year ago, a powerful earthquake struck a remote area of eastern Afghanistan, killing more than a thousand people. Afghanistan is one of the world's poorest and most malnourished countries. It has been largely isolated since the Taliban seized power more than two years ago. Hadid, NPR News, Mumbai. Simone Biles won her sixth world all-around title at the Artistic Gymnastics World Championships in Antwerp, Belgium yesterday. She's now the most decorated gymnast of all time, two years after she put her career on hold. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Massachusetts lawmakers are condemning attacks by Hamas in Israel this morning. Congressman Jake Auchincloss said on social media that he supports Israel's right to defend itself. Fellow House members Bill Keating, Lori Trahan, and Stephen Lynch also condemned the attacks. President Biden will send a team from the Department of Homeland Security to Massachusetts to assess the migrant situation here. This after the Biden administration faced pressure from Massachusetts Democrats to see the unsustainability of the situation for themselves. The federal team will look for ways to improve efficiencies and maximize support for communities taking in migrants. A rheumatologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital has left his job after being accused of giving inappropriate breast and pelvic exams. Derek Todd has also voluntarily surrendered his medical license. Brigham and Women's says the hospital had been investigating Todd since April, then decided to terminate him. He did resign as a result. The hospital says it's offering support for affected patients. Jamaica Pond is shut down to people and pets because of toxic blue-green algae. The Boston Public Health Commission says the water has a dull green discoloration. People are advised to rinse off immediately if they, their child, or their pet comes into contact with the algae. Symptoms of an algae-caused illness include stomach pain or diarrhea, fever, and skin, eye, or throat irritation. Apple picking season is in full swing this holiday weekend, although some orchards did get wiped out or lost apple crops this year because of the extreme frost and flooding. Honeypot Hill Orchards in Stowe is open for business. General Manager Chelsea Martin says they survived this season despite the unpredictable weather. She attributes this to some luck and techniques to counter the excessive frost. We were up all night uh, we lit fires and we have wind machines which help draw warm air down from the upper atmosphere to keep the cold air from settling in pockets. And she says the wet weather means the apples this year will be a bit bigger, 64 degrees at 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Israel says it is at war after the Palestinian group Hamas launched an unprecedented attack on its territory. In an early morning assault, the militant group infiltrated Israel's southern border from Gaza using motorbikes, paragliders, and boats, launching thousands of rockets. Hamas says it has taken Israeli soldiers and civilians hostage. In response, Israel has carried out a wave of airstrikes inside the Gaza Strip. The death toll on both sides is rising. At least 250 Israelis have been killed and more than 1,000 wounded. Health officials in Gaza say more than 230 Palestinians have been killed and more than nearly 2,000 injured. This is one of the biggest escalations in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in over a generation. NPR's Daniel Estrin joins us now from the south of Israel. Hey, Daniel. Hi, Scott. How did all of this unfold? Well, it started early this morning. I was in Tel Aviv and heard air raid sirens and booms. Uh, I went into a reinforced sheltered room. And, uh, and it just is continuing to unfold uh, it, since then. Uh, it, today has been a Jewish holiday, and it, it really caught Israel uh, unawares. This is also the 50th anniversary of 
the Yom Kippur War, which was another surprise attack on Israel. So uh, that war was a major trauma on Israel, and I'm already hearing Israelis saying this uh, attack today is is catching them almost even more uh, mm-hmm. shocked. They uh, they they were witness to videos coming out from Hamas of militants coming in on tra- on trucks uh, on paraglides by the sea. Uh, it was a massive Israeli intelligence failure to to have what the Israeli military says are hundreds of uh, Hamas militants coming and infiltrating into the country. Um, all day long, we've heard air raid sirens and, and rocket fire from Gaza onto Israel. All the way late into the night here, uh, still we're hearing about fighting in dozens of Israeli communities where Hamas militants have infiltrated. And you right now are in the main hospital in the south where these Palestinian militant infiltrations have taken place. Tell me what you're seeing. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the reception area here and I've just, I've met family after family of people, uh, for instance, who have missing children, children, uh, young, young children in their 20s who are at an outdoor festival. We met young, a young man who was at that festival who was, said he was shot in the back. Uh, he suddenly saw about five trucks, about 50 Palestinian militants encircling this large group of uh, people at this festival as they ran in fields and he hid under a, a car. He says the militants found him and shot him. Uh, We met a religious Jewish man who was wounded at his synagogue from shrapnel to his leg from rocket fire. And we also met many Muslims here, Palestinian citizens of Israel. Uh, One man said his sister was killed. Another man said his brother came under fire and is missing, perhaps taken hostage in Gaza. And that is a key thing we are hearing from Hamas and also the Israeli military confirming that Hamas has taken Israelis uh, 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 kidnapped under hostage. Mm-hmm. At one point, Scott, we walked into uh, one of the hospital rooms here, and I ran into an old professor of mine from Brandeis University near Boston, where I did my undergraduate degree, Professor Elon Troen, and here's what he told me. My and daughter and son-in-law were killed today, but in their dying saved his life. They fell in his body. They were all together in the secure room and they covered his body and he was saved. He, nevertheless, a bullet penetrated them and went into his abdomen. Oh my goodness. So many stories like that I've heard here, Scott. <sighs> Tough conversations. I mean, in, in the 30 seconds or so we have left, what do we know of the scene in Gaza? Well, Israel has responded with airstrikes there, uh, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is telling residents of Gaza, get out now. The Israeli military is going to, quote, turn all of Hamas's hiding places into islands of ruins. We'll have to see um, how Israel responds going forward. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin on the scene for us. Thank you so much. We will be talking to you a lot in the coming days. Daniel, stay safe. Thank you, Scott. As we have heard, this is an escalation in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that we have not seen in decades. And to get a better understanding of what is unfolding, we spoke with Edward Jeregin today. He is a senior fellow at Harvard's Belfer Center Middle East Initiative and is the former U.S. ambassador to Israel under President Clinton. And he joined us by phone from his home in Boston. So we're talking about a surprise attack on a Jewish holiday, and it comes the day after the 50th anniversary of the 1973 Yom Kippur War, which was, of course, another conflict which Israel was not expecting. Fifty years on, Israel seems to be blindsided again here. What does this say about the state of Israeli intelligence and military readiness? 
Well, it is evidently a failure of Israeli intelligence, uh, certainly military intelligence. And I think it points out the lack of human or human intelligence, uh, not really having an espionage network in which you can determine uh, with some, some success the intentions of your adversary. Uh, Israel has very sophisticated technical uh, capabilities uh, in, in terms of surveillance and intelligence methods. But you, you really, at the end of the day, you, you, human intelligence is a critical factor that has been obviously lacking here. And that's going to be one of several huge storylines over the coming days. But I, I also want to ask your, 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 your thoughts on Hamas and, and its goals here. Because, this, look, this fits into a wave of violence that has been continually unfolding over recent decades, and that always seems to end with a much heavier toll for the Palestinians. So given that, what do you think the motivation for Hamas was here to launch this type of widespread attack, knowing it's going to be met with such a harder response? Well, this is the modus operandi of Hamas. Uh, we've seen it in the past in the several wars between Israel and the Gaza Strip and Hamas. And Hamas will periodically choose in its eyes the opportune time to maintain its leading position as the most militant force against Israel and the Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories. So it is playing by its uh, well-established card deck. Uh, As to to the timing now, uh, one can speculate, and I've seen a lot of speculation. It's difficult to discern uh, what actually triggered this, uh, but it was an operation that was very sophisticatedly planned well in advance. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't an afterthought or something that was planned within the last 48 hours a week. But there are a lot of things going on, as you well know, in the Middle East, there's uh, the Uh, the talks between the Israelis and the Saudis and the United States on possible reconciliation between uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel, Mm -hmm. uh, an extension of the Abraham Accords. Uh, There is the uh, constant threat in the north of Israel of Hezbollah that has been making very threatening uh, sounds uh, of of late. And there's the continuing occupation uh, of the Palestinian territories and and really the the lack of hope for the Palestinians for any political horizon and any settlement. And... And, of course, there's the fact that that Prime Minister Netanyahu has returned to government with a much more hard right coalition this time. Many factors to talk about. I want to ask about something you did just mention, and that is the recent Israeli diplomatic efforts with other Gulf states. Have you seen a have you seen that reflected in the way that 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 countries like Saudi Arabia and Qatar and others have responded to this? So far, we haven't had uh, any clear indications that I've seen. Uh, I think uh, the, the Saudi foreign minister uh, appealed to the EU to uh, use its influence to uh, help end the violence uh, in the Gaza Strip. But uh, it'll take a little time to determine exactly what the positions of these other Arab states mm-hmm. But you, you, you pointed out something, another uh, a critical factor uh, is the uh, internal situation and, the, and the, the steep divisions within the Israeli body politic, yeah. which Hamas may have interpreted uh, as a, a weakness in the government and a weakness in Israel's uh, military posture, because a lot of the military units in Israel have been assigned to the West Bank and protection of settlers and uh, taking care of 
violent incidents elsewhere. And one has to ask, uh, I do not know, but one has to ask, was the southern border of Israel with Gaza sufficiently protected? What do you think the U.S.'s role is moving forward? We heard from President Biden today. He pledged rock-solid support for Israel, saying that he will make sure Israel gets everything it needs. And that comes at a time where many many members of his own party have been more critical of, of Israel's military operations in recent years. Yes, I mean, uh, President Biden's statement was, was uh, very predictable, uh, demonstrating strong support. And I'm sure there'll be uh, whatever military support they wish to give to Israel uh, at this time to bolster their capabilities. Uh, but the the important thing here is really the lack of a political horizon, the lack of any, any movement on negotiations between the Israelis and the Palestinians. This hard right wing government that has uh, ministers who really are uh, proponents of annexation of more territory in the, in what they call Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. Mm-hmm. All of this uh, points out to a, uh, a framework of uh, allowing the extremists like Hamas to gain advantages. And this, this cycle will continue unless the core issues are addressed. That's Eric Jeregin, a former U.S. ambassador to Israel under the Clinton administration, now a senior fellow at Harvard uh, Kennedy School's Belfer Center Middle East Initiative. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. On 90.9 WBUR and coming up at 6, the Moth Radio Hour. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Burton's Grill and Bar with modern American cuisine and signature dishes like crab crusted haddock and superfood salad. Eight locations in Greater Boston, Burton'sGrill.com. And the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting Lizzie. Lizzie Borden finally gets her say in this ghost story meets rock concert musical now through November 5th. More at TheUmbrellaArts.org. 64 degrees at 518. Rain likely tonight, sun tomorrow, and sunshine on Monday. WBUR supporters include Greener U, working throughout New England to integrate climate action into the entire construction process for a fossil-free future. Learn more at GreenerU.com. And Lessons in Chemistry. Oscar winner Brie Larson stars as a chemist who hosts a cooking show. Proving Life Doesn't Follow a Formula, streaming October 13th on Apple TV+. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. President Biden condemned the militant group Hamas's attack on Israel today, saying Israel has the full support of the U.S. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says his country is at war as Israel responded to the attacks with airstrikes in Gaza. The death toll on both sides is rising. Scores of people are dead in a devastating magnitude 6.2 earthquake in Herat province in Afghanistan near the border with Iran. Taliban officials say aftershocks continue and many people are injured. Homes have been destroyed. And Simone Biles won her sixth world all-around title at the Artistic Gymnastics World Championship in Belgium yesterday. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners with Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, offering a variety of native shrubs and trees for a landscape that's gentler on the earth. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash native shrubs. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to making it easy for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Buckle up, everybody. We are about to talk about grass, specifically grass lawns and the people who really, really do not like them. Hey, TikTok. Want to show you how my lawn is doing? I'm trying to kill it, solarize it. Well, I've just killed my front lawn. Looks like Most of it, anyway. I'll explain. I hate my lawn. So what am I going to do? I'm going to kill my lawn. If you look on social media under hashtags like anti-lawn, you will find people like the ones you just heard from on TikTok who are very anti-grass. Howdy. Welcome back to Anti-Lawn Talk. You know what I hate? This grass. That feels really harsh, but it isn't a new sentiment. People are getting rid of their high-maintenance grass lawns and replacing them with more environmentally friendly alternatives. Tyler Thrasher is an artist in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He is currently undergoing the process of removing his grass lawn. We're going to have a native seed bank in our front yard that we're going to like allow people to come get so they can try growing some of their own native plants and food. He posted an Instagram video showing how the shift from grass to plants is going so far. Mulch Mountain right here. Never have to mow again. Kill all of this and we're just going to plant a bunch of natives and food. He says he's gotten some strange looks from neighbors as he works on his lawn. When I'm like with a pitchfork shoveling mulch into a wheelbarrow and dragging it up to the yard and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm killing my grass. And they're like, why would you do that? And I tell them why I'm killing my grass and I tell them the vision. He says that vision includes growing vegetables, native plants for pollinators, a pond, possibly a small orchard. Uh, My wife really wants some fruit trees. So I was like, I'm gonna get you some damn fruit trees. Thrasher and his wife have one son and another child on the way, and he's hoping his yard will be an educational place for his children, too. So I'm just imagining all the questions, all the observations that are going to come from our kids hanging out in our yard and helping us harvest the food and drawing the bugs and just being around them rather than just staring at like a grass lawn turf, you know. (laughs) Aja Yassir and her family also decided to get rid of grass. So we transformed the front lawn, the backyard, and the side lawn into growing spaces. Yassir lives in Gary, Indiana with her husband and two children. We grow fruit, vegetables, medicinal herbs, and we have ducks um, where we hopefully will be getting eggs soon, but they are endangered ducks. And, oh my goodness, they are loud. (laughs) In 2016, Yassir and her husband moved from Illinois to Indiana and bought a home place that had been vacant for 20 years. But when a neighbor objected to that non-traditional lawn, problems started. We started by building the soil up and we built the soil by adding wood chips and compost, covering the entire lawn with cardboard. That's called sheet mulching, covering it with compost and then wood chips. And some people got really upset with this. She says even though they were bringing a long, vacant property back to life, she got a citation from the city in 2017 
Then the following year, she got another citation. The city said that we had debris and they were calling our wood chips debris. After a year-long court battle, the charges were finally dropped. Yasir says she does get it. People are really attached to the idea of a traditional grass lawn. But she hopes that will change. People want this cookie-cutter look to their yards. They want to pretend like everything's okay. We're in Mayberry. We have these beautiful lawns. I think that if we put our hands into the soil and really understood what Earth is asking for, we could be a part of a huge change and a huge shift. But there are a lot of people who are not going to give up on their grass. And that's despite the fact that high-maintenance grass lawns require frequent mowing, fertilizer, sometimes weed killers and pesticides. And also, grass lawns do not provide many environmental benefits. You have your home, you got your beautiful yard, and there's this image. There's this image that none of us question, this perfect manicured facade. If the outside of your home looks good, your family looks good. What looks good on the outside might reflect what looks good on the inside. America has had a long love affair with the lawn. But the popularity of the grass lawn really took off after World War II and the creation of mass housing that we came to know as the suburbs. And to understand grass, you've got to go to Long Island, to a place that came to define the word suburbs. This is Levittown, one of the most remarkable housing developments ever conceived. Levittown was built up between 1947 and 1951 by William J. Levitt and his company, Levitt & Sons. And the Levitts were uh, sticklers for the uh, idea that the landscape should be uh, a well-groomed landscape. In fact, so much so that they required homeowners and in fact built it into the covenants and the deeds uh, requiring homeowners to mow the lawn at least once a week during the growing season. Ted Steinberg is a historian who teaches at Case Western Reserve University. He's the author of American Green, The Obsessive Quest for the Perfect Lawn. The well-manicured, perfectly trimmed, bright green lawns became a staple in American culture an idea that went hand-in-hand with the American dream. Decades later, people are still perfecting their grass lawns. But Steinberg notes there is a shift happening for some people as more and more pay attention to what's going on in the environment and with the climate. We take the lawn for granted, and yet when you think about it, it's one of America's leading crops. There's roughly 63,000 square miles of lawn in the United States, so how much is that? Well, it's uh, a land area equivalent to the to the state of Florida, uh, not to mention that the lawn care industry is a multi-billion dollar uh, industry, and it's got enormous uh, ecological consequences because people are putting down a lot of chemical inputs uh, without really giving it all that much thought. And I mean, there are a lot of ecological issues in the world today, but I, I would argue the, the lawn's one of them. And it's, it's one we can control uh, if we want to. To understand the roots of our grass lawn habit and how we can maybe break it, I called Susanna Lerman. She's a research ecologist with the United States Forest Service. She studies how urban and suburban yards can be more environmentally friendly and better for wildlife and pollinators. I started by asking her, are grass lawns really bad? So I'm going to flip that around. I wouldn't say that they are good for the environment. Okay. And so if you look at a lawn, basically what you're going to see is mostly just grass and it's very short. So there's not that much structure. And so when we think about some of these other features that these lawns could provide, like habitat for wildlife, 
there are not that many homes for the, for other types of species there. There's we don't have that complexity. There's not that much different types of vegetation, different types of plants, and so there's just not that much going on ecologically speaking in these lawns. And you compare that to say a, a forest and you go into a forest and you see all the different types of trees and shrubs. There's tall trees, there's short shrubs and everything in between. And so from that perspective, there's all of these different niches that different species like birds and bees and other critters can find a place to get food, to get shelter, to find water, all these different other factors for their habitat. What about just like the amount of water that, that Americans spend watering their lawns or the amount of gas uh, being used in gas mowers? Like, is over maintenance actually an environmental concern collectively? Yes. And so I don't have the exact number for the amount, like the percentage of water use that goes to watering our lawns. But I we did look at the amount of carbon emission from using a lawnmower, a gas powered lawnmower. And it's, you know, if you mow your lawn less, you're going to be emitting less carbon dioxide. So that's just that's just simple math. Mm-hmm. However, it's it's really negligible compared to the open space that we have in our lawns, because not only is it just grass mostly that's growing in our lawns, but they're, they tend to be warmer and they tend to be drier than, again, I'm just using the example of a forest. And so if we were to plant a couple of trees in our lawn that can bring down some of these temperatures, and that has a a really strong opportunity for reducing the amount of carbon that's emitted from our lawns. Um, And it's something like 40 times more than just the actual lawnmower. So yes, mowing our lawns less will, will be better for the environment when we think about those carbon emissions from the lawnmower. But the lawn itself is really where um, a lot of the carbon is, is being emitted. So again, some of these simple solutions and, you know, planting a tree will take time to be able to get at the shade and to get more moisture um, soils. But that's something that we want to think about long term that can have a, a big impact. You know, we're, we're talking about people thinking about this, wanting to do this. I mean, there's a whole other side of this conversation as well, and that's with increasing extreme droughts in places like California and elsewhere. There are increasingly directives to to stop putting water into lawn care and to change what lawns look like. Yeah, and we're seeing that throughout the whole Southwest. And there's a lot of these incentives that are paying people to actually take up their lawn and to have more drought tolerant types of species that are planted. Um, Phoenix is another great example where there's we're really seeing this shift out of necessity. And what makes sense when we think about what we're putting in our, our yards from an environmental perspective or a biodiversity perspective, if we can have our yards look a little bit like the natural environment that it replaced, chances are it's going to be better for the environment. And so, yeah, so if we have cactus and other types of succulent types of plants in the these arid cities and suburbs, those plants are going to grow easier and they're going to provide all these other different um, services for a whole bunch of other species. What's a step in the right direction? What is something that is better than grass in a lawn? So before we even get to what's better than grass, um, I think most people still want to have some some lawn. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm all for that. I have a lawn in my yard. Uh, but one of the things that we can do is manage these lawns less intensively. So rather than mowing every week, we can mow every two weeks or every three weeks. 
uh, we can let those flowers that are in the seed bank come up, um, like the clovers and the dandelions. These are all really great uh, resources for bees and other types of pollinators. Basically, we're, we can grow food for wildlife in, in our lawns. So I think that's kind of the, the easiest step to do is to just do less, to be this, what we call this lazy lawnmower. Uh, there's other opportunities that we can have our lawns be a little bit more wildlife friendly and better for the environment and for the climate. Um, things like planting specific flowers, these bee lawns are really taking off in places like Minnesota. And this is an opportunity to specifically reseed our lawn with different types of, of plants, especially these flowering types of species. Yeah. And then the other component is just to have less lawn. So take away some of our lawn and put in different types of plantings, plant trees, plant different types of, of uh, flowers that are going to be attractive for pollinators or other types of species. So I think there's like a whole bunch of different things to do. I feel like increasingly in this moment of coming off the hottest summer ever, uh, extreme weather leading to widespread deaths and just, just a sense of just how big the climate crisis is, I can hear people thinking like, well, who cares if I use my lawnmower a little less? Like there is just such such big problems right now. Does it even matter? I mean, what would you, what would you respond to somebody who's thinking that? So when we think about, so one individual yard probably doesn't matter, but there's about 110 million yards scattered throughout the United States. And so if everybody does a little bit less, mowing their lawn a little bit less or planting another tree, collectively, we can really have a huge impact. And, you know, another question um, that I think about is like, why should we care? And so when I think again about, about bees and the importance of trying to create pollinator habitat in our lawns, which we can do, I like to ask people a question like, do you like strawberries? And most people will say yes. And if we like strawberries, then we need bees. And so if we think of other ways that we can provide habitat for bees, I'm all for it because I want to have my strawberries in the summer. That is Susanna Lehrman, who is a research ecologist with the United States Forest Service. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Enjoyed talking with you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Deciding to cross the Mediterranean Sea in a smuggler's boat is for many a final act of desperation. Thousands of people drown every year trying to reach Europe. NPR's Ruth Sherlock has spent this week on the MV Geo Barriots, a search and rescue ship run by the charity Doctors Without Borders, known by its French initials, MSF. All week, she's seen up close the terror migrants face at sea. Just after 2.30 in the morning and behind me the one of the search and rescue boats is being lowered into the water. They have identified a boat in distress and now they are going to the rescue. The vessel is just near the geobarrant ship. The migrants on board use the light of their phone screens to attract attention. 
The rescuers arrived to find 162 people crammed into a tiny wooden boat. Carefully, the rescuers bring the people onto their dinghy. One wrong move and the wooden boat could capsize. On deck of the geobarracks, I watch as other MSF staff receive the rescued. All women and kids so far. Lady in a tiger pattern jumpsuit, soaking wet, top to toe. The first word they hear when they arrive on deck is welcome. These are maybe the first moments of kindness that these people have encountered in months. Mostly from Syria, but also from Egypt, Bangladesh and Sudan, they endured long journeys to make it to Libya, where the detention and even enslavement of those trying to reach Europe is common. An Egyptian man comes up to tell me about some of the violence he endured in the three years he spent trying to cross the Mediterranean from there. He's showing me a scar on his hip. Libya. So imagine the relief when a member of the MSF team confirms to the rescued that part of their ordeal is over. The first thing I want to communicate to you is that we will not go back to Libya, okay? After a night spent in darkness, on the tiny, crowded boat in the vastness of the Mediterranean Sea, with no life jackets, radar, or idea if they'd survived the night, many of the rescued look shell-shocked. The MSF staff hand out blankets and food and give them the space to rest. These rescues are politically controversial in Europe, and on the bridge of the Geobarrant ship, the mood is now tense. Good morning, sir. This is uh, Geo Barrens. I'm calling you in reference to our uh, last communication, our last email at uh, our 11.19. Fulvia Conte, the head of the search and rescue team on board, is on the phone to Italian authorities. She wants the Geo Barrens to respond to more people in need of help in this part of the Mediterranean. But a new Italian law compels charity ships to now return to a designated port immediately after a rescue. Conte is on the phone appealing that the geobarrants be allowed to change its course. We have been informed of several distress cases around this area. But she's eventually told no. Uh, Madam. Yes? Our instructions are the same. If MSF ignores these instructions, they could be fined and the geobarrant ship impounded for weeks or months, preventing further rescues. So they stay the course, forced to leave three boats in distress, some 130 people, potentially without help at sea. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, the Mediterranean Sea. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. So glad you're with us. I'm Susan Levy. Coming up at 6, the Moth Radio Hour, it runs until 8. At WBUR, we occasionally offer you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is appreciated but not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org. 64 degrees at 539, rain likely tonight, a low in the low 50s, and sunshine tomorrow and Monday. 
low 60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the 58th Annual Head of the Charles Regatta, presented by BNY Mellon. See over 12,000 world-class rowers compete October 20th to 22nd, free at Herder Park and Riverbend Park, sponsored by Vineyard Vines and Senegenics. Visit hocr.org for more information. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Hundreds of Israelis and Palestinians are dead after a surprise attack by the militant group Hamas today. Israel responded by launching airstrikes and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says his country is at war and that it won't end quickly. President Biden says the U.S. stands with Israel, saying his staff will continue to be in contact with leaders around the region. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and a bipartisan congressional delegation are in China today, the first congressional visit to the country since 2019. And in New Mexico, the skies are colorful thanks to the start of the nine-day Albuquerque International Balloon Fiesta, one of the most photographed events in the world. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. As we've been reporting today, Hamas militants in Gaza launched a surprise attack on Israel this morning, and Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has declared that his country is now at war with Hamas. Zaha Hassan is a human rights lawyer and fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace Middle East Program and joins us now to help give some understanding of what we're seeing. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you, Scott. Devastating scenes happening in Israel and Gaza. Hundreds have been killed and, and things are shaping up to continue. This is the latest example of a pattern of violence that has been unfolding. And the size and the scale are what stands out. It's, uh, what are you expecting to see in the coming days? I mean, I think it's going to get a lot worse, and I don't expect it to wrap up uh, very quickly. And that's, you know, because uh, we have promises from uh, the prime minister of Israel that uh, there's going to be uh, a very heavy response on Gaza. And we know from past experience uh, what that tends to look like. Uh, We already have uh, tanks getting prepared to roll into Gaza. Uh, We still have Palestinian fighters out um, in uh, Israeli cities uh, that are neighboring Gaza. Um, But we know that Israel's philosophy of uh, combat in situations like this Mm -hmm. is uh, to to directly go after civilians and civilian infrastructure to to, uh, deter future um, attacks. So I think we're going to see a very heavy Uh, civilian toll moving forward. And I want to specifically ask about that. In his address tonight, the prime minister said, quote, to the residents of Gaza, leave now because we will operate forcefully everywhere. What do you make of that statement, especially given the track record that you're talking about? Uh, 
Well, you know, where, where should they go is my first question. Uh, where, where should people uh, living in Gaza go? They are under a blockade and a siege that has been going on for 16 years. There is nowhere for people in Gaza to flee when they are attacked. They have no uh, shelters that we see in, in Israel. So when he talks about getting out of the way, I, I, I think he knows they don't have anywhere to go. So, um, you know, the responsibility, though, is on the Israeli occupying army to protect Palestinian civilians. They are under obligation, having a 56-year military occupation. They also know what international humanitarian law says about this. So they have a duty to protect uh, Palestinians, even if they, um, you know, are responding against uh, militants and the militant attacks against civilians inside Israel. We're talking about about uh, an escalation that we have not seen at this level in many, many years. It's very clear it's going to get worse based on, on what people like the prime minister are saying. Uh, in, in, in about a minute, we've got about a minute left. I'll just flag that. But what are some of your top specific concerns about the coming days? What will you be focusing on and looking for? Well, first of all, I'm, you know, I'm going to be looking at the U.S. Uh, actions and interventions here. Now, President Biden spoke today and he talked about Israel's right to def- uh, self-defense. But, you know, self-defense doesn't operate in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Again, there's an issue of uh, a military occupation and an end of occupation is really the priority here. So I hope to see the U.N. Security Council tomorrow addressing how, to, how do we get to end of occupation. Mm-hmm. That's Zaha Hassan, a human rights lawyer from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace Middle East Program. Thank you so much for speaking with us this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Big industrial development is often framed as a trade-off. The companies building refineries and factories or drilling big oil wells will argue the downsides of pollution are outweighed by the economic benefits of all the jobs the industry brings to a community. But new research from Tulane University shows that most of the oil and gas jobs in black majority communities in what's known as Louisiana's Cancer Alley, an area known for high levels of pollution and way higher than normal cancer rates, go to white workers. Researchers from Tulane shared their findings with Floodlight, a nonprofit newsroom focused on environmental reporting. Terry Jones is a reporter with Floodlight and has a new article published on Friday based on this new research published on The Grist, as well as NPR affiliate WWNO. He joins us now from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Hey, Terry. Hey, Scott. So big picture, let's start here. What did Tulane find? Well, basically what they found is the highest percentage in disparity was in St. John the Baptist Parish in Louisiana, which is home to the third largest oil refinery in the nation. And there, people of color represented 70% of the working age population, but make up only 28% of the manufacturing workforce. The disparity was even greater with respect to higher paying jobs, such as managers and sale workers and technicians, where minorities only hold 19% of those positions. So this is according to the Tulane uh, research data. And they use basically publicly available data on jobs, tax exemptions, and the toxic air emissions, and which is part of a a larger analysis that the Tulane Environmental Law Clinic is doing that's taking a look at the hiring and disproportionate pollution exposure from industrial facilities across the country. And that's a good thing to just kind of to to underscore and explain. This wasn't wasn't necessarily a list of all the employees at, at a company. They were looking at the big picture data, the demographic makeup of the people getting this job, these jobs and comparing that to the demographic makeup of the people who live in the community. And you're saying 
there's a really big gap here. Right. And, and, and Scott, I've been covering communities in Cancer Alley for almost 10 years. And this is something that I always heard anecdotally from people, residents there. Anytime I went to do stories, they would always say, yeah, you know, we have all these health risks because we live next to these polluting facilities and they also don't hire us. I mean, I've heard this for years and years and years and years. And I actually just happened to meet uh, one of the researchers from Tulane's Environmental Law Clinic. And this discussion came up and I was kind of pointed out that, listen, this is something that I've always heard, but there really isn't a way for us to get at this as journalists because these are private companies. They don't have to share employment data with us. And the researcher that I talked to in this article said, hold up, hold up, Terry. I think there's a way that we can get at this. And there's, this is some work that I want to do and I would love to share it with you. And that's kind of how this all came about. So you have that initial conversation they get to work, they come up with these findings, and I'm curious what the response has been. First of all, what has the response been from people in the community who have been saying it's felt like this way for, for a long time? The best way to describe it and how they describe it to me was that it was kind of like a gut punch. It was something that they always suspected, they always knew, but when they saw the hard numbers, it kind of knocked the wind out of them a little bit. And what has the response been from the industry? Because I covered oil and gas drilling in Pennsylvania, and there wasn't necessarily as much of a racial disparity, but there was certainly a disparity between local people getting the jobs versus people coming in from out of state. And the answer was always, look, it's highly specialized. You have to hire the people who know how to do it. And sometimes that's not the local community. I mean, that's been the argument for years and years. Well, and, and so let's, let's have let, let's take this two ways. So let, let's go back to this. The, the last question you just asked me. One of the residents I talked to, she said that she had multiple family members. This is in St. John the Baptist Parish, who went to college and specifically majored in things like industrial engineering because they wanted to stay home close to their family so they can get these jobs. They went to go get the jobs and they were, she said they were told by industry, oh, no, 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 you need to go through our like trade program. That's where we kind of funnel our hires through. They do that, still didn't get hired. So these are people with that specific background that they're looking with for. With specific background, people of color. I reached out to a lot of the companies that uh, I cited in the article. Many of them did not respond to me. Marathon Oil did respond to me. I shared all of the data with them. I said, what is your response to this? This is what people are saying. They feel that you're not hiring them. The jobs are not going to the local community. What do you have to say to this? They did not answer that question directly, but they did say that, well, listen, we have been providing all of this money, I think approximately $500,000 to scholarship programs that are designated for minorities looking to study and get jobs in industrial related fields. Yeah. And we had um, gotten a similar statement, I think, from Marathon and a lot of the things that you talked about. They said that more than 30 percent of their hires now companywide are people of color. I, I wonder what the people you talk to make of, of a stat like that. Is that enough? Yeah. I would love to share that with them. I didn't get that stat when, they, when, I, when I reached out to them a couple of months ago. I just want to broaden this out to end the conversation. You know, the high cancer rates in, in this stretch of the state are so well known, as is the fact that, that the harm disproportionately goes to people of color. The EPA had recently opened a civil rights investigation into the area last year. A lot of people who lived there were hopeful that that could lead to changes. The case was shuttered in June before any negotiations between the EPA and the, the State Department of Environmental Quality could conclude. 
Any sense of what that means going forward here? Some of the people in that uh, case were the people I interviewed in this story, St. John the Baptist Parish. They were very, very heartbroken by that decision. But what I did find is that they're not letting that beat them down. They seem dedicated and they seem poised to just continue fighting and pushing back as much as they can. And I will note that we will have a lot more reporting on that EPA investigation and what happened to it on tomorrow's All Things Considered. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. One of soccer's greatest stars will retire this fall. Known for her talent on the field and activism off of it, Megan Rapino has been an outsized figure in women's soccer. Friday night was her last regular season game with, in Seattle with O.L. Reign, the team she's played on for 11 years. KNKX's Grace Madigan has this look back at her career. A new National Women's Soccer League attendance record was set last night by over 34,000 fans who showed up to Seattle's Lumen Field to celebrate the one and only Megan Rapinoe. Outside the stadium before kickoff, there was music, food, face paint, and hairspray. Eight-year-old Harper Womack was at the game with her grandparents and soccer team. She said Rapino is her favorite player. I just like how fearless she is and how she's not scared to, um, to be in front of a bunch of people. Megan Rapino had been playing professionally for just a short time when her career was launched to a new level at the Women's World Cup in 2011. Her last second assist in the quarterfinals to Abby Wambach tied the game with Brazil and became an iconic moment in soccer history. Rapino, Wambach, 2-2! Two, two. That's what you call USA razzle-dazzle! Oh, man. What a freaking moment. That's Abby Wambach the all-time leading U.S. goal scorer in international soccer. She says that Rapino's soaring kick across the field was perfect. It was a much better cross than it was a goal. Everybody who knows and watches and plays soccer knows that. From there, Rapino's prominence as a soccer player ramped up. In 2012, she helped the U.S. win gold at the Olympics. In 2015, she was a part of the team that won the U.S. its first Women's World Cup since 1999. And in 2019, she was co-captain for the U.S. team when they won the World Cup again. Oh, for me, she's top. You say Mia Hamm, you can say Michelle Akers, and then I would put Megan Rapinoe right up there. Becky Sauerbrunn is a veteran for the national team and has played with Rapinoe since they were teenagers. I would say from very early on, just her vision on the field and the ability to execute what she wants to do. So like her technique, the way that she can whip in um, free kicks, the way she can whip in crosses, like there's a texture to it that you don't see a lot of people able to hit. But Rapino has become almost equally well-known as an advocate for progressive political issues, including LGBTQ rights, racial equity, and equal pay for women in sports. Meg Linhan has covered women's soccer extensively for The Athletic and says that Rapino began to emerge as an activist in 2016 when she knelt during the national anthem in solidarity with former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick. But 2019, I think really truly is that that point where you go from Megan Rapinoe being a very famous women's soccer player to Megan Rapinoe being famous, period. That's because during the World Cup that year, she got into a very public feud with then-President Donald Trump after telling a reporter that if her team won... I'm not going to the ass. No. 
Rapino later apologized for the expletive, but doubled down on the comment, saying she didn't want her team's platform, quote, co-opted by an administration that doesn't fight for the same things we fight for, end quote. Her comments endeared her to some on the left, but drew intense backlash from the right, for whom she's become a common subject of criticism. But that didn't silence Rapino. She's also been an outspoken critic of unequal pay between men and women in soccer. Here she is, testifying in front of Congress in 2021. We've filled stadiums, we've broken viewing records, we've sold out our jerseys, all the popular metrics by which we are judged. And yet, despite all of this, we're still paid less than our male counterparts. She and other players filed a claim of wage discrimination against U.S. soccer in 2016, and then a lawsuit in 2019. Last year, the organization agreed to pay both their men's and women's teams equally. Becky Sauerbrunn says the attention Rupino brought to the issue was critical. She's brought us alongside her and has encouraged us and educated us and told us, like, be brave, live brave. And to me, like that, that is her legacy. Abby Wambach adds that Rupino's visibility as an out gay soccer player has helped fans and athletes to unapologetically be who they are. Like that that's the thing that I am so astonished at by her is that she's had such a successful career because she hasn't ever not been trying to be herself. Rapino's sense of humor remained intact throughout all the pomp and circumstance. In the post-game press conference, she was asked what was next. Smirking, Megan replied, Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> but on a more serious note, she explained that she hoped she could be a part of the growth of women's sports. I'm really looking forward to, you know, being sort of one of the, the business architects in this, this next phase. For NPR News, I'm Grace Madigan in Seattle.